You know it's been a morning. <laughs> For those of you who are gathered here, it's been fairly innocuous. Roland's been uh, doing his usual awesome self-leading. Um, I had a couple bad jokes early. You know, we're on par. Online, however, you know, it's Easter, so it's not like it's a big deal in our faith or anything. It's not like there's anyone tuning in, and it's not like, you know, it's important that we weren't streaming for still half the service so far and class was done. It's all fixed now. Please, Lord. <laughs> and so, if you will, President will indulge me for a second, to those online, I apologize. There were some oversights which we didn't catch with the account, and suffice it to say, We've been busy almost since we started streaming this morning to get it online. It should be good, but I apologize for your worship on Easter being interrupted and so disconvoluted. And I pray that from here on out, it'll be smooth sailing. And I'm sorry that you get to tune in just as probably the weakest part of the service, the sermon, happens. But thank you very much for joining us from wherever you're joining us from. Once again, I apologize, and we'll make sure it doesn't happen again. But thank you for joining us. With that said, let's just everyone take a moment and just breathe. At least I need to breathe just for a second. <laughs> I do wish you happy Easter. And here's the thing about the Christian faith. Even something like this morning, even something like nothing going right tech-wise, we can still say, praise God, because the tomb is empty. Now, sometimes it's harder to you know connect tech problems, Jesus out of the tomb... You know, Jesus didn't have Wi-Fi. It's not like any of that. But yet, I think that's one of the big things about Easter. And this isn't part of my intro, but the thing is, one of the things which I am constantly reminded about, and this is me just confessing to you, one of the things I'm constantly reminded about and challenged in my own life is I tend to rely on Jesus in the big things, right? Oh, no, we're out of money. Oh, no, there's a death or sickness in the family. Oh, no, COVID, for whatever reason. It's a lot harder for me to still take comfort in the tomb in some of the more innocuous or smaller things, like, oh no, tech is out, I have to fix it, oh no, this is a... But doesn't Jesus' resurrection impact every aspect of life? At least shouldn't it? If nothing else, take from this point, I'm constantly reminded of that I need to grow not just in my belief and in my assurance that Jesus did rise from the dead, but I'm constantly reminded of places in my heart and head which need to be affected a whole lot more. <sighs> Let's pray. Holy Father, it's been a morning for those who are, uh, you know. <laughs> but, as I myself often pray, if we hit a home run and everything goes right and we fill this building as much as we can and people are watching from everywhere in the world, praise you. But yet also, if we crash and burn, we're doing it for your glory, and so praise you. Help me to keep that in my head and heart, and I pray that even that, even though that's a sermon in itself, I pray we can take that seriously and take it to heart this week, because today is the celebration of the fact that your son is no longer in the grave, but your son is alive and at your side, and therefore we serve you and the living Messiah. And that ought to permeate every aspect of our life in every way. Computers, finances, stress, yes, the big stuff, every aspect, God. I pray that today, from this moment on, that we can all have our hearts that much more impacted by the amazing fact, the amazing blessing of an empty tomb. 
and what that means for not just, quote-unquote, the big stuff, but every aspect of our lives. If I may, God, I do pray for the tech for the remainder of the service (laughs) on behalf of those who are watching. But regardless, God, I pray that the words of our mouths and the thoughts of our hearts and the songs from our lips and the prayers that all for Your glory, all for Your praise and reflect the truth that You are living and active Your Son is alive, having overcome death, and we are the people who live in You. Be with us this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, speaking of actually interesting debacles and disasters, it was 2008. I was a brand spanking new airman, just anointed with my wings on my chest, very proud, as a matter of fact. And I was in Lackland Air Force Base, uh, and it was hot, and I was looking forward to leaving, although I didn't realize that where I was leaving to was Altus, Oklahoma. I was a little bit delayed, and my training got rerouted, so that way I would do initial loadmaster qualification at Altus first, and then do my survival training and water survival, which is fine, it happens, but that meant I got to go from Lackland to one, one place. I was training to be a loadmaster on one of these, a C-17 Globemaster III. Uh, still very much one of the most advanced cargo airplanes in the world, one of the most capable. Uh, if you have any, just this is just because I like to show off my old office. If you're curious how big it is, that is a CH-47 Chinook helicopter. This is a helicopter which has the double rotors inside the jet. It was awesome. I got to load those. You missed the top by about that much. You had to tie it down. It was fun. But I wasn't there yet. I just got my wings, which meant you might get to fly. And so I made a trip that ended up being an 18-hour trip just from Lackland to Altus, which is not that far, but I had to go through, three, if I remember right, three different airlines, two different taxis, and then I actually caught a ride to the base from Lawton, Oklahoma, via some other, I think, Fort Sill and they were dropping off some other army deployments. So it took a long time, and I didn't sleep beforehand because I was working on very little sleep, you understand, in order to get to this room, which I arrived on a Saturday. I checked in. There was an airman there, which kind of didn't care about procedure and protocol. He said, oh, sure, here's your blankets. Here's your pillow. We'll check you in on Monday. Here's your room. Uh, It was exactly like this, bare bed and all. I took off my outer jacket, took off my shiny shoes, and unbuttoned my tie, and I collapsed on the bed. I just got done with training in Lackland, 18-hour day. I'd been up for over a day. I collapsed on the bed. I woke up to a much different scene. You see, that night, an F3 tornado tore through Altus. I met an airman the next morning for the first time. Her name was Kelsey. She said, did you hear that last night? I went, no. She goes, what? I went, no, what happened? She goes, dude, a tornado almost hit us. Like, I was asleep. (laughs) It did quite a bit of damage. Uh, I remember the next day seeing, these are the big 15-foot-wide, no, 33-foot-wide, 15-row bleachers. There were three of these around the Altus, uh, connected around the Altus field. They were thrown a half mile across the base. 
I remember seeing that. I remember seeing the damage the next day. Trees down, houses destroyed. Here's an excerpt from actually a a, a um, newspaper article I found. Semi trucks blew over on top of each other. Power pole snapped in half. The superintendent is now missing most of its second story. It was trying to push out of there, said Timothy Anderson. He and a coworker were inside the room on the second floor when the storm hit. The window started moving, and I said, "Hey, we probably better head for cover." Good job, Timothy. The wall and everything came on top of me when it was over. The two are practically outside. So, the point is, I slept through that. <laughs> not in a good way, either. It was, not only did I sleep through that because I was so tired, but no one knew I was there. No one had any record of me checking in. And if I had been blown away, everyone would have been like, where's Thomas? <laughs> Actually, they would have been like, who's Thomas? Because no one knew I was there. Looking back, as concerning as that was, I almost preferred being sleeping because at least I didn't know what was going on. And I guess if something would have happened, I wouldn't have noticed. (laughs) But the thing is, I was sleeping when comparing to the text we're looking at today, I was sleeping for all the wrong reasons. I was sleeping because I was tired. Now, that's not a wrong reason, but it was a wrong reason to be not concerned about what's going on. I was concerned. I was not concerned I was asleep because I didn't have any other choice. Today, we read in the text of someone who sleeps through a storm not because he's simply tired and not because he's just ambivalent or doesn't care, but because he knows something. He knows something beyond the storm. He knows something that is a sign of stone, and he knows it from the right reasons. If I would have been awake, this would have been my reaction. I was asleep and simply didn't care. Jesus slept through the storm, not because he didn't care, but because of his assurance in something, which we're going to look at today. As you know, we've been going through Matthew, and our text today is not a traditional, quote-unquote, Easter text. Take that off there, it's going to distract everyone. (laughs) Our text today is not a traditional Easter text, yet this text is an excellent Easter text in its own right, because it reveals to us Honestly, some of the essence of what Easter is about. It starts, however, in Matthew 8, verse 18, which let's read together. Matthew 8, starting in verse 18, says, Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the side. He had just gotten done teaching on the Sermon on the Mount in the text of Matthew. He's healed a leper, he's healed a centurion servant, and he's been healing the crowd around him. And so when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side of the lake that they were at. And the scribe came over and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another disciple said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Now, we come to this text, especially if we have a paradigm of Jesus as being very patient, very graceful, very loving, very understanding. We read this text and we go, What? A little harsh, Jesus. It's a little bit in your face, isn't it? Well, let's consider what's going on here. Because this actually reveals something about the very thing that we celebrate today as well. Let's take this first uh, section for a little bit. Someone comes to him and says, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Let's go back to the military uh, example for a second. I personally saw many people in my flight, later on in training, 
who wanted in their heart to say, in my case, the Air Force, Air Force, I will go and I will serve and I will die even wherever you send me. The problem was, is that joining the military is not just about going and doing something. You see, you learn from basic training nothing about your job, specifically. And you learn nothing about the operational Air Force. What you learn is how to stand, how to walk, how to talk, the history of the Air Force, how to address people. You learn how to march. You learn how to exercise, if you didn't know already. And they exercise you quite a bit. It doesn't show now, unfortunately. The thing is, basic training and all of your training doesn't much care about your intention about send me wherever or let me go. It cares about everything else. It cares about the entirety of your person. It cares about how you conduct yourself. It cares about how you stand. It cares about the details of how your shirt looks. It cares about the shininess of your shoes. Now, people may look at that, and believe me, people who are in this looked at that and went, this is stupid. And maybe it was sometimes. There were a couple TIs, which I think just were having a bad day. Maybe their computers failed them that morning and decided to take it out on us poor young airmen. But it's not about what your intention is. And it's not about the ultimate end. It's about trying to teach you in the military that the military, that the military bearing, that how you conduct yourself as a whole person matters a whole lot more than just if you know how to do a job or not. Because how you conduct yourself as a whole person will impact how you do your job and how well you do that job and how well you help others do their job. In essence, the military is concerned not just about the results, but about the whole process of becoming whatever it is you're trying to be. In essence, if you're joining the military, the Air Force would tell you, Air Force, I will go wherever you send me. And the Air Force will say, sure, but first, we're going to make you a whole lot different than you are now, meaning a whole lot better, hopefully. I use that metaphor not to militarize Jesus by any means, but to simply say that the heart of this matter is very similar. The scribe came to him and said, and he's a scribe, so already has a little bit of authority in the area. Maybe he's thinking, hey, if I join this popular rabbi, maybe I'll have some, some leadership. Maybe I'll get to disciple something. Maybe I'll get to go different places. He's thinking about the results. He's thinking about the benefits. He's thinking about the end. But Jesus says, Foxes and foals and birds of the air, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. What is Jesus addressing? He's asking the question of, you say wherever. And even maybe I believe you, young scribe, but Jesus is asking him, do you also want to follow me in whatever way that I walk? In whatever way that I talk? In whatever way that I live? He's talking about the fact that foxes have a home, birds there, but the Son of Man is nowhere to lay his head. He's talking about the fact that the nature of his ministry means he's on the go. means he's not necessarily homeless, but he's always going to the next place. He's ministering. He doesn't have a home base. He's not, he doesn't have a lot of stuff. Jesus will talk about the fact of, you know, don't take anything with you for disciples. Take your, your shoes, take your cloak, nothing else. Depend on the hospitality of strangers. Be prepared for encountering evil. Be prepared for encountering people who are not going to like you. You're prepared to follow me wherever I go, but are you prepared to follow me in whatever way I go there? We don't know the answer to this question with the scribe, but it presents a very interesting question to us. 
which is what holes and nests do we like to stay and be content in rather than constantly be on the move as Jesus was towards God? Many Christians, maybe I'll start to meddle, I'm not sorry. Many Christians want to follow Jesus to heaven, to follow God to the benefit of eternal life. But when it comes to letting the resurrection maybe even impact every aspect of their heart, maybe when it comes to someone that they ought to show mercy to or have opportunity to, but they continue to shun or judge, maybe it's holding on to something against your brother or sister that Jesus says you ought to forgive. There are many ways and many instances in which we are more than content to rather be a bird or a fox that has a home and to stay right where we are. As opposed following Jesus in the way that he lives. Not just to go to heaven. I've actually even said from this pulpit, I'll say again, the point of a Christian is not. (laughs) The point of Christianity is not just to go to heaven. The point of Christianity is to be like Christ. One of the biggest things about Easter is that, yes, it's celebrated, and yes, it is momentous day, but it's indicative of something. It's indicative of the fact that Jesus is different. And if he's different, what he demands and what he expects is different. It's not just a moral teaching that we get to apply and say, hey, we're good people. It means something much greater. Indeed, First, uh, 2 Corinthians 5.17, Romans 6, 3 and 4, constantly talk about, among others, constantly talk about not just that you are saved, but yet that through salvation you have new life. Second Corinthians 5, 7 literally says, if anyone is in Christ, new creation has come. It means you are a new person, and with newness involves new priorities, new destinations, new ways of acting. In essence, It's very similar to the basic training of the military, that the fact that you go through it and you come out and you walk, you talk, you act differently, not just in order to be benefited by it and do a job, but your whole person is affected. Jesus is asking this person if he's willing to do that as well. The next verse he says, Another disciple said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Once again, this sounds kind of harsh. But yet Jesus in his wisdom and knowledge, is making a point. There's a couple of different interpretations of what dead means. Not just the explanatory, the most obvious one. First off, he says, what's more eternally valuable? You have a chance to follow me now, or you have a chance to go have a funeral. Or in some cases, people think he's even waiting for his father to yet die, which could take a day, a month, a week, a year. Now this is a direct question, but it's worth asking. If someone's fate is sealed, for in this case, he's dead, he's dying, or even in the more innocuous terms of life, what's more eternally valuable that we often maybe not want to do first? What's more eternally valuable as a Christian or a church or an elder or a minister? There's a lot of application we could go there, and I'll come back around to it, hopefully. I'll probably forget, but I'll hopefully come back around. Number two, he's asking, is this what you, 
you need to be doing. There's an interpretation of dead meaning, you know, if he's on his way out, even a secular person, even a non-kingdom person, even a, even a Gentile or even someone who doesn't believe in me, they can handle that if, he's, if it's just funeral preparations. What are you going to do? And is your priority right now me? Or is your priority handling this thing which anyone could do? That's something I think we struggle with a little bit in the church. One of the questions that I had to ask people is that in this congregation or in the kingdom, what is it that you think only you could bring and only you could do? And if you're doing something else, Why? question that goes along with the first. What's more eternally valuable at this moment? And plus, is this what you, yes, you, you personally, absolutely need to be doing right now? Or is there something more eternally valuable that you ought to be doing at this moment? And finally, number three, the most obvious interpretation, Jesus is saying, me first or not at all. Jesus is arguably one of his most blunt here to someone who's not a Pharisee. (laughs) When he says, I understand but he says, first let me go and do this. Me first. Or he might as well not have been come. That's a hard thing. Luke 14 talks about this. When he talks about you must hate your mother, father, sister, and brother. He's not saying you have to hate them. That's actually violating other biblical principles. But he's talking about priority. He's saying who is first in your heart? Who is first in your life? What first must you do? Follow me or... Do this or what's eternally valuable and what do you as someone who is faced with who I am what do you need to do about it? Roland, remind me to come back around to that if I don't bring it to a full close. Or Jennifer. I trust her more. Going on. From that though Jesus when he got into a boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the winds and sea obey him? This is a very, very well-known story, and the application here is nothing new per se, but it's always worth going over. Jesus is in a storm. So bad that his disciples start to fear for their own lives. And Jesus is asleep. Once again, not because he doesn't care, not because he's exhausted, but because he knows that there is no storm of life too great for his power. So therefore, he already knows the answer to the question that his disciples are asking. What sort of man is this? That's what I like to focus on from this passage. It's not the fact that, yes, Jesus can indeed calm the storms of our lives. And I do indeed. Here, let me just put it up here. I even do have those applications. The fact that Jesus calms the physical storms, he calms the chaotic storms. What I mean by that is that all... Matthew was written to Jews, right? All through Scripture, the sea and the tumultuous seas are not only real, but they're also a metaphor for chaos in your life, for trouble, for strife, for trouble for things that don't go well, which has to be reordered and conquered in a sense. So Jesus not only is calming the physical seas, but He's also calming the chaotic, the troubling seas that the disciples are faced with. And the fact that they are afraid for their lives, they are in the midst of deep trouble, and He goes, it's okay. 
but he also calms the spiritual storm because that's what the issue is here. The disciples are on a boat with someone they believe to be the Messiah, and yet they go, Save us! If I were Jesus, I'd be like, What do you think I'm here for? Be still. Jesus already knows the question, the answer to the question that they're asking. What sort of man is this? What sort of man is this? Well, the question, which once again, hopefully I come back around to. I'm saying it so I remember, you understand. I'm not necessarily making sure I wrap things up. The question is only expounded upon and maybe even deepened in the next pericope passage. When he came to the other side to the country of the Gardi Gadarene, sorry, two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tomb so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went to the pigs. And behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled. And going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. When they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. Now Jesus confronting people's priorities and confronting their, uh, their intentions, sure. People seeing that Jesus can calm the storm, sure. Then we get to this passage, and it's a whole lot of... What? One of the things we have to do with Scripture, especially in a format of this preaching, is to not focus on what Scripture does not focus on, and focus on what Scripture does focus on. Just for a little bit of geography, for those who like that, um, this area here is generally where Jesus... Uh, lived most of the time. Here's Capernaum, Nazareth, Jerusalem, Bethel's in the middle up here. Um, so this is on the right side of the Jordan River, uh, roughly in this region. When this is a primarily Gentile region on this side, which is why we think there were pigs around. Pigs were an unclean animal to Jews. And so there is a possibility maybe it was Jewish farmers raising them for Gentiles. Probably not. Most likely this is a Gentile herd. He's in a Gentile reason. Uh, region. Probably these were even Gentiles that were demon-possessed. But even right there, people go, what about demon possession? I'll be honest with you. I tend to look at C.S. Lewis and agree. He tends to say about demon possession that there are two cardinal sins when encountering this in Scripture. One is to get so wrapped up in the details that we start to answer things that we know not the answer to. Or, we blithely just skip right over it and barely give credence to the fact that, yes, there is such a thing in the Bible as demon possession. The Bible is only extreme on a few things. Demon possession is not one of them. Neither should we be. And in fact, the whole point of the passage is not here to elaborate and to explain demons and how they work and how they can go to it. So therefore, that's not our point this morning either. What is the point? The point is, is that two people have been infected with evil. Infected with demons. And the demons recognize who Jesus is and they are afraid. And they beg him, if you cast us away, send us away into a herd of pigs. Why? That's a good question. Read five different commentaries, you'll find five different answers. The whole point, though, is the fact that Jesus 
did not command them to go into the figs. He simply allowed it. Therefore, the point of the passage, what it's telling us about Jesus, is not in that. They asked to go into the figs for whatever reason. But what I want to focus on, though, is what they do afterwards. Notice that they go into the figs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. Now, first and foremost, that's just a pretty horrible image. Lego aside, and obviously as someone who likes pork, no, no Jew, but I'm going, that's a whole lot of wasted pork loin and pork chops. But This is a horrible image. It's one of death. It's one of destruction. It's one of waste. It's one seemingly of needlessness. But what I find interesting is that the pigs almost foreshadow something that happens far too often. Actually, back in 2005, there was actually a documented videotaped, I wouldn't recommend watching it, uh, encounter to where Turkish farmers watched a lead sheep go off the cliff to which the rest of the herd followed. Aren't you glad that we're not like sheep? I think one of the biggest two points from this that I want to focus on is I think the pigs are foreshadowing something. They're foreshadowing that whenever we become in contact or whenever people become enraptured or infected or whatever you want to say or become too close or too comfortable with evil, with Satan, with demons, however you want to put it, where will it lead us? Only over the edge. Into, interestingly enough, troubled waters. Chaos. The fact is, from this passage, from whatever it doesn't focus on, it gives us an incredible look and foreshadow of how people react to Jesus. Not only in the fact that demons recognize his name, but the fact that when infected with evil, look what happens to God's creation. But also, look at how people reacted. The fact that he just did something and exemplified a difference between him and evil, people instead go, Jesus, get out of here. People don't want to be confronted with sometimes the way out of evil and the way out of troubled waters. So what's the point? Let's bring this all together a little bit. Jesus Thank you. You're a gentleman and a scholar. Thank you. <laughs> this passage that Matthew is telling us is talking about how Jesus reorders priorities. He calms our storms. He conquers evil first and foremost, but also he redirects chaos. That's the contrast of the last passage. Those who are possessed by demons go not only over the wrong edge, but into chaos, the troubled water metaphor, but also the fact that in Jesus then there is not that, but then also... It's an image of him overcoming death. He overcome death on the water. He overcome death in the fact that the demons caused death. He, by contrast, he does not. What are we learning from Jesus? We're learning who he is. We're learning 
that in Jesus, we have the proper priority. In Jesus, every kind of storm can be conquered and overcome. In Jesus, only in Jesus on this point, can evil truly be conquered in our hearts be cleansed. Only in Jesus can we really, truly redirect the chaos and trouble of our life into something that still becomes God-praising. And only in Jesus can we conquer death. Here's the big thing about all of this. Why is all of this true? And why isn't this true? Because there are other messiahs, there are other people that promise these things. In fact, the teachings of Buddha and the teachings of Hindu are being about Moral people about trying to find calm and inner peace. The teachings of many other religions are about being moral and good people. There are teachings galore about how to conquer your inner demons. There are people teachings galore about how to how to bring order to your world. There is even teaching about how you yourself can overcome death. Except, what's the biggest thing? In every other case, whoever taught that, their tomb is not empty. Why does any of this matter? Why is any of this true? Why do we need to pay attention to anything that Jesus says? In essence, the question is, who is this man and is he really worth following? That's the question that Matthew is asking. That's the question he's starting to ask. That's the question he's going to expound upon. But I want to give you a quick spoiler alert. Who is this man and is he really worth following? The answer is yes. Why? Because the tomb is empty. If the tomb wasn't empty, Jesus would be just like any other teacher. Do this because it's good. Do this because it's worthwhile. Do this to be a, do this to be a better person. Do this to cause some good in your world. But the tomb's empty, loved ones which means that Jesus is not just a moral teacher. He's not just someone who we listen to and go, oh, that was nice. He's not just someone that we can afford to follow when it's convenient, to follow when after we do what we want, to follow only when it's clear sailing, to follow only when we encounter no, joy, no pain or sorrow or evil, only when we're in good straits. He's a man that because the tomb is empty, demands our whole self, our whole heart, our whole mind. Because the tomb is empty. What Easter asks year after year, what Easter asks year after year, is who is this man and is he worth following? The answer is yes, because the tomb's empty. But the challenge for us, year after year, week after week, day after day, take up your cross, not every year on Easter, not every year on Christmas, take up your cross daily and follow me. The choice for us as Christians who do believe that this is true Actually, it's pretty historically verifiable too. If you're interested, I have some resources, not just because the Bible says so. The reason that this is true, why that is true, impacts us in our totality so that it forces us, at least it ought to force us, to ask the question, who is Jesus and is He worth following today? 
Maybe for some of us, not just today, but last hour. Maybe for some of us, the next second. These are some in-your-face and sometimes confusing passages, but they all lead us to the same point. The fact that the tomb is empty means Jesus is worth it and demands our all. So, I do wish you a happy Easter. I do enjoy the fact that we're here today to celebrate this. I do enjoy the fact that today we will do some of the usual Easter festivities, but I also celebrate the fact that for us, this gives us an excuse to highlight it, but for us, we constantly ask this question, and we constantly help each other ask this question, and we constantly help each other do what Jesus demands, to walk, talk, live, breathe, think, prioritize, deal with our world, and overcome death, only through the power of the empty tomb. The stone wasn't rolled away to let Jesus out. The stone was rolled away to show the world that, yeah, he's not there. He's risen. And everything that means 